This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. As a show with a sometimes focus on evangelization, we inevitably return to the question of the rise of the nuns, by which we mean that increase in the percentage of those who, when questioned about their religious affiliation in a survey, select the box that says, none, I am not affiliated with any religion. And this is a topic that has generated a number of books, a number of articles and panels and conversations uh, that are worth having. Um, because that number has risen from around near 0% in the 1950s, it's gone through a number of different iterations and plateaus, to where we are today, where it's nearly 20 to 25%, depending on the survey, of those who are asked what their affiliation is that select that option, none. It's also worth noting that the percentage is higher among younger people. So uh, those who are 19 to 20, their percentage is between 36 and 38% none, whereas uh, as the as the age gets higher, uh, that number gets lower. Now, it's tempting to say, oh, well, that's just because as you get older, you get more religious. Uh, and so as people get married and they have kids, they return to the church. But that's not necessarily the case, and that's the subject of our conversation today as we're talking with Father Casey Cole uh, of the Order of Friars Minor, the Franciscans. Uh, He has a YouTube channel called Breaking in the Habit. You can find out more about that channel and his other endeavors by going to breakinginthehabit.org. But he recently put together a video uh, provocatively titled, They're Not Coming Back, But We Can Do Something. And we're here to have a conversation with Father Casey about that video. Father Casey, thank you so much for joining us on air today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So in the YouTube video, you make the claim that the people who are nuns, they're not coming back. It's easy to to look at historical trends in a vacuum and say, well, we, we can look at previous generations and see that at those milestone moments, they came back. So we really need to focus on milestone moments as a way to bring people and welcome people back into the church. You say it's different this time. What's changed? Well, and it's exactly that. I I think for my time as a friar, I've heard a lot of our older friars share their experiences of how they've been welcoming to people coming back and that we've always been as the friars, those who have kind of been on the margins, maybe outside the walls a little bit, just those people who maybe have not fit into the the perfect mesh of the church. And we found those people uh, that Pope Francis talks about. And we say, hey, there's still a place for you. And for many years, that's been a great place for us, is welcoming them back and saying, Catholics, come home, you have a place. And and because of that, we look at the current crisis and we look at the number of people who are 30 or younger not going to church, and that refrain comes back. Don't worry, they'll be back. And I'm starting to realize, as I think many are, that they're not coming back because they were never here in the first place. And I think that this is a hard thing that we need to realize is that 40% of Gen Zers are not going to church. And so when they go through their midlife crisis, when they're looking to get married, when they have their kids, there's nothing to fall back on. They wouldn't have ever known it to begin with. And so if we want a next generation, we've got to go out and find it. There's a a phrase that I hear brought up periodically that God doesn't have grandchildren, right? That Mm. there's never this sense of, oh, well, you know, 
my parents went to church and therefore I'll, I'll eventually find my, my home in the church as well. And we're seeing that kind of played out as many of the people who are parents of adult children now, they were the kids of the really faithful parents. And maybe they went through youth group, maybe they went that far, but then it hasn't maintained a place in their lives and therefore it didn't have a place in their children's lives. Yeah. It sends a, it's, it creates a sense of urgency, I think, in us and should make us feel a little uncomfortable in that you can have a church around for 2,000 years and have great tradition, but it takes one generation for it to fall apart. Now, I, I'm not thinking that the sky is falling and I don't think that we're ultimately in charge of the church. I do believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. I believe that Christ will prevail one way or another. But I do think that we are in a dire situation that could get much worse if we don't recognize that we need every generation to pass it on to the next because at some point I'm going to get old, I'm going to pass along, and who's going to be there to keep the lights on? Hopefully I'm not the one turning them off. Well, and you look around the United States at the very least, and mm-hmm. diocese after diocese is in, in a time of uh, reorganization, uh, sure. to put it. Maybe that's the, the nicest way to say it, um, mm-hmm. where you've got multiple parishes that grew up under a specific time, uh, a specific need. And those parishes are now in decline and people are moving and the demographics are shifting. And then even after COVID, when people were away from the church, realized that, oh, maybe I don't miss this as much as I thought I did uh, and have not come back after the pandemic lifted. I think those demographic shifts are really important. You know, I I grew up in the Northeast where we can all say that the church is definitely fading um, and maybe the worst section of the country in terms of decline. But I moved to the Southeast and so you see churches are booming. Uh, we're building schools. Mm-hmm. We're building churches. We are expanding. And that's great. And we might, two things, we might be tempted to see the Northeast as the whole church and say everything is in decline, which it's not. There are parts that are growing. Mm-hmm. But we might also look to the Southeast and say, see, everything's great. When in fact, it's people moving from the North to the South. And in fact, people moving from the South to the North, from Central and, and South America and, and, and Mexico. And it kind of masks an issue where we get these kind of mega parishes, but all the small ones are fading away and all the other regions are kind of conglomerate, uh, consolidating into a conglomerate. That's not necessarily growth. It, it's just kind of masking an issue. In your video, again, the video over on YouTube, they're not coming back, but we can do something. Uh, one of the things I love about all of your presentations of of whatever thing you happen to be thinking about at the moment is that you always find that kernel of hope and move us toward that you know there's it would be easy to just look at the problem and and feel sorry for ourselves or point at it and just complain uh, but there's always something that we need to be moving toward if there's a problem we need to be moving towards that solution and so you talk about what it means to be missionary disciples in our day and time. And I wonder if you might touch on that, and then I'm going to add a yes and to the end of that. Sure. Well, I love the the passage from Luke 15. And Jesus offers three parables. This is what I talk about in the video, where we, we know them so well. It's the lost sheep, it's the lost coin, and then it's the prodigal son, the lost son. And so often we see that as ourselves being the thing that is lost. And there's some truth in that, right? We hear them speaking to the the tax collectors and sinners saying, God will always come after you. God will always find you. And that's a very comforting message for sure. But if you look at the preface of that, it, it seems clear to me that he's not talking to the tax collectors and sinners. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he's saying, a sheep doesn't lose itself. It's the responsibility of the shepherd to go after it. 
It's most clear with the coin. A coin doesn't just get up and roll away. You lost it. And then the sun, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it still works. Who's going to blame a teenager for doing teenager things, for being reckless the first time they're on their own? There has to be an adult in the room that goes and says, if nothing else, we're not going to make you deal with this these consequences on your own. We're going to help pick you up. And I think if we can look at it from that perspective, we see Jesus looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, weren't you in charge of these people? Weren't you the ones who were responsible for them? How did they get away in the first place? And it's all of that that kind of points back to me and says, I can't wait for them to come back. I've got to go out and get them. I've got to be that shepherd. I've got to be that woman. I've got to be that father who says, I'm really sorry what happened and maybe I'm responsible, maybe I'm not, but I am definitely responsible for going to get you. And to that point, this is the yes and. You mentioned in the opening of that video and in the opening of our conversation here that many of the folks who who have that title or click that that checkbox on the the uh, the questionnaires? None. I affiliate mm. with no religion. Um, that a, a great number of those weren't raised in the church, and we can't just trust that they're coming back. My yes and is, points to the second part that you've just mentioned. There is that many of the people who have left um, aren't leaving out of I. I never heard the gospel. I didn't know this. The church wasn't a part of my life. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite. That the church was a central part of their life. They had a. Um, they heard many of the messages of the gospel, but it was in some way tainted and twisted by the actions of maybe their priest, maybe someone in uh, their community, who put put such a sour flavor on what had been the message of the gospel that it's now forever uh, or until such time as the grace of God can can come to that place, it's now forever tainted with their negative impressions. The nuns, many of them, have no affiliation with, relig- with religion because of emotional uh, pain, because of some abuse or some mistreatment that isn't something that we can just, you know, brush off and say, oh, well, it's their problem now. They they sure. had that problem. And to an, to an even further point, we have to make sure that the language that we are speaking is accurately communicating the gospel and not just becoming a trigger point to remind them of everything that was painful to them when they left. Yeah, I, I don't have data in front of me, and I'd be interested to know more about this. But my kind of guess on this is that it's second generational trauma. My guess is that there are a lot of people who are 15 to 25 who have stories of or have vague ideas of, and that's why they don't go, but it's their parents who have handed it on. And in fact, most people are probably just fading away because they've never seen it as meaningful in their lives. They've seen religion for uh, a religion without faith. They've seen it religion without spirituality where it is uh, pay your tithes. It is a, a preacher up there who is uninspiring. It is judgmental people in the churches. And so I, I think there are some that have seen it and they've gotten hurt by it. Certainly a generation ago with the sex abuse crisis, certainly with some mismanaging of funds, there are a lot of people that let us down. But I would say a, a lot of it is just they never met someone who is an actual Christian. And I don't mean that to be judgmental of anyone, but I think there are a lot of people who go to church that don't have Jesus Christ as the most important thing in their lives. They talk about the church and the sacraments. And I I think this is something that's so important is people are catechized, but they were never evangelized. And this is not the blame of Gen Zers. 
it's the blame of my generation and generation before who are now passing this on of this lackluster faith, this follow the rules, but no, no sense of the rules. And so a lot of my mission uh, when I give talks and when I meet with high schoolers as a chaplain is trying to have them have an encounter with Christ because I just don't think they even know what that is. Certainly, I, I, I see to your point that I think that there are some trauma there, but I think most of it is just they have no idea other than it's just a political organization just like everything else. And that's that's an interesting point to maybe press into a little bit more, this idea that the church exists to interfere with society or to uh, mm. to have that political voice. Um, obviously, for those of us who are in the church, we we have a different view of that. But how do we yeah. communicate that view? How do we communicate the reasons behind those statements that we make, maybe even in the political sphere, uh, th- to show that they are not intrinsically political, even though that's where the discussion is taking place? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure entirely. I, I do know, though, it has to start with the fact that, and we can use some kind of general Protestant language, but that we were saved. And I think it has to start from a sense of salvation, a sense of relationship, a sense of, you know, I'm nothing on my own. And yet, look what God has done with me. That that personal sense of being lifted out of uh, the ditch, of being that sheep that was lifted up, and show how our lives are completely shaped, changed, and we owe everything to Jesus. And then because of that, because of the grace of God, we're doing this thing. It's so fascinating to me, and obviously very saddening, when we get into political debates and a Christian gets up and says certain things, I'll hear a response and say, oh, well, you just want control. Oh, you just want mm-hmm. to manipulate. There's no sense that people are actually being genuine. And I may even disagree with their logic. That's not even the point. But the fact that people are so cynical that they can't even see that someone could be genuine is a problem I think we need to address before we can have any debates about any political issue. I think one of the the things that strikes me as very important is taking the time to even hear that cynicism and to allow ourselves to realize that the, what you mentioned there earlier, that sometimes it's our fault that the coin got lost. And to really address, are there, you know, examination of conscience, are there things that I have done? Are there ways that I have not taken the time to be active in my listening that I need to improve in? Right. Rather than yeah. just diagnose the other person as the problem and say, well, if they just got with the program and heard what I was trying to say, but to really do some internal investigation of, am I as a disciple actively and accurately passing on the faith that I've received? And it can be as simple as this. Do you live a life of joy? Do you live a life that someone would want to be a part of? And so often when we get into these political discussions or just in society in general, Christians are perceived as wanting more rules or judgmental or wanting to interfere with the goodness of other people's lives. And, and I think that that's, that's bad marketing on our point, our part, but it's also just, it's, it's the basics of evangelization. Pope Francis has talked about this for so long, and he talked about it with the joy of the gospel, is that we can't look like we're going to a funeral all the time. The resurrection compels us on to be joyful, even in suffering. And it's something I talk about with our high schoolers and our young people, is, you know, playing with the social media idea, how many followers do you have? And I don't mean Instagram and YouTube, but how many people look at your life and say, I want that, and then investigate, why are they joyful? Why do they have such a good life? That's, I think, where we have to start sometimes is the the 
persona that we uh, put out, is it attractive? I, I think that we talk about uh, truth and goodness a lot, truth being apologetics, goodness being morality. But what about beauty, the, the third transcendental? What about that attractiveness of wanting people to be interested in us? I think that we need a lot more attention with that. This is something that can't be faked, right? It's not the kind of thing of, well, I'm just going to make sure that my life looks attractive. I'm going to put on a good face for everyone because you can smell authenticity and you can see the the, the counterfeit from a mile away. Yeah. And young people know it. That's what they're looking for is authenticity. You handle this very well in your outreach and the work that you do and being very authentic and being very joyful. Um if you were to give a masterclass on what it takes to uh, to let go of dourness and to pick up joyfulness, what would that look like? Uh, well, first you got to have great parents that teach you this when you're kids. I don't know. I, I, I attribute a lot to my upbringing and just having good parents. So that that's part of it. Um, I just focusing it begins with yourself and focusing on what really matters. Uh, and and I think that it's something we talk about with the beatitudes. I mean, the beatitudes are suffering in some ways. They're, they're not attractive. They're not things that people would want. And yet the beauty about them is that when you can live those things and still be joyful, it's because you're focused on the kingdom of heaven. You're focused on the resurrection. You're focused on the grace of God. And so I think if you want to be presenting yourself as joyful, you've got to first of all find that joy of grace. And you've got to be confident that God is actually in charge. And I worry sometimes, and again, it's not despair, it's not giving over to society, but I worry that a lot of Christians think that our church can be corrupted or is corrupted. Mm -hmm. I worry that people don't really trust in the grace of God, that Jesus truly is control in control. And I can tell you, I believe it with my whole being. And if I didn't, I would be sad. I'd look at our politics, I'd look at our church, I'd look at our violence, I'd look at all these things around, and I'd say, well, what's the point of even trying? But I don't because I really do trust that God is in control. And it may look bleak now, and I may go through some suffering now, but the glory to be revealed is going to be amazing. That's where we got to start. You hit the nail on the head here. I hear it a lot around the upcoming synod. I hear it a lot around um, <clears throat> a lot of the circles that I have been in for a long time, where people are truly concerned about what's coming next in the church. And for me as a convert, I came in from the, the Methodist tradition, part of what I converted to was this sense of, of calm, that I don't have to worry about the outcome. It's the, 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 I think it's John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, who said, um, <clears throat> it's your church, God, I'm going to sleep, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, it's not my job to, to take on that, that responsibility to make sure that orthodoxy persists, right? Mm -hmm. And to that extent that we take on those things which are beyond us, we're going to feel out of control because we were never in control. We never had the capacity to ensure that the direction of the church is going to go where it needs to go. Ultimately, the only way I think we can be at peace is to recognize that, that Christ promised and that he is true to his promises and take hands off. Yeah, and I, I think part of it might just be my Franciscan charism, um, seeing the world as Francis does, that is not 
completely devoid of God. It's not like the devil is, has control and we're just living in this horrible wasteland and we can't wait to get to heaven. But the way Francis saw the world was that God is imbued in it all, that his fingerprints are everywhere. And so even in poverty, we would say, even in sickness and the leprosy, even in war, he's able to look and find goodness of it while condemning what is evil, of course, and while turning away from what is not good. But I don't think people have that worldview. I think people are cynical and are looking for ways to to be critical. Uh, And I wish that we had the view of saying, I want to find God in everything. And I want to be able to hold things in tension to say, this thing over here isn't perfect, but man, this one part of that thing is great. And it's what I think Father Patrick and I do really well on our our channel upon Friar Review, is I get to show him things from the internet, things from media that are admittedly a mixed bag. There are some things that are offensive. There are things that are wildly different from what we would believe. But what I think what we do is we're able to pull out that one nugget of truth and say, ah, let's hold this up. Let's look at this wonderful thing. Rather than throwing everything away, isn't there goodness in everything? I think that's something that everyone could practice a little bit more. Training our eyes to, to, to say in the wilderness— God, where are you in this place? Where is the burning bush in the middle of the wasteland? Where is the presence of God where everything feels uh, turned upside down and lifeless? Yet still, as the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? I can go to the highest height and you're there. I can go to the lowest depth and there you are. Uh, And perhaps this is just a, a result of our being trained in our society today and social media and whatever else that we have to have an opinion about everything. Yeah. Um, Awful. Perhaps we think that we have to form this opinion and, and analyze and deconstruct everything, but there's something so beautiful about just looking around and, and letting it be what it is. Yeah. And, and what a, an oddly, you know, circular it's, it's back to the Pharisees of, Oh, do you see who he's associating with? You can't even go to the center. You can't even go to mixed things and say, well, I'm trying to evangelize. I'm trying to present a good thing in an evil place or in a mixed place. It's such a weird, um, you try to find the goodness of things and people want to say, yeah, but did you see the bad? Well, yeah, I saw the bad, but I choose not to focus on it. You don't have to be condemnatory and say, well, I wish you would speak up more about that. Or I wish she would condemn this. I don't know if that's our place. Yeah. Way back when I was a teenager in youth group, my youth director said this phrase, and it has stuck with me to this day and beyond, that rebuke without relationship breeds rebellion. Mm. And that so often we want to go and point out the bad in someone's life, but they have we have absolutely no standing with them. Right. They, they don't know who we are. Our opinion means absolutely nothing. And the fact that we bring it up and point at it just makes our opinion even that less valuable. And so uh, he passed on to us at this time that if you're not willing to to gain standing with that person through relationship, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Again, Pope Francis talks about this, how we evangelize. Proselytism does nothing. It's not something that helps us. It's that long walk that really does something. And it's something I've struggled with a lot because I I can be quick to be matter of fact and say, no, that's wrong, you know, wanting to correct. And I've seen that that doesn't work at all. I've I've struggled with this, especially as we have have a post-fact world or uh, truth is not quite as objective. 
people are much more willing to listen to someone that they respect and like and think that is on their side than someone who's an expert. And yet Mm -hmm. I find myself still being the expert or still being the one who speaks the truth. And that's not necessarily going to convince anyone. I, I, someone said this a number of years ago and I repeat it all the time that no one ever converted to Christianity because they lost an argument. And, and I think if we can get that into our brains, again, this, it's not truth. It's not goodness. It's beauty. It's, are we attractive? Are we creating a relationship? Are we someone that someone's going to look to and say, I'm curious what your opinion is. If not, it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter if we're Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure have the most eloquent words. They're not going to listen. So maybe we should spend a lot more time on building those relationships and becoming that trustworthy person. It's almost like um, that Jesus was onto something when he said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the gospel. And I think that's where, you know, truth without uh, uh, love um, is not true. And love without truth is not truth. And I think that there's something, there's not real love, it's just sentimentality. I think you need both because what is the truth we believe? It's the love of the gospel. And so you, you can't you can't be a jerk and speak the truth and think that you're spreading the gospel. Something's drastically missing. Well, and to that end, uh, I think a lot of people struggle with this. How can I be in relationship with someone who is wrong about something that I, I deem to be of extreme importance. Uh, and yet I think that there is a way for us to be loving toward and even accepting toward a person who we don't agree with, but that belief by itself is not the most important thing. The, the, the dignity of the human person, that person being made in the image and likeness of God, that's where we start. And then the other things will work themselves out through that relationship. That's an incredibly difficult question. And I think that that is exactly where we are as a country. And we really need to, to take this one seriously because it sounds great, exactly what you've said and what I've said. But you know, think about it practically. You know, do I want to be friends with a white supremacist, a Nazi? Mm-hmm. You know, do I want to be friends with someone who s- says racial slurs all the time or homophobic things or like, hurtful things? No, I don't want to be around that person. Mm-hmm. But then who will be around that person? And I think that if we are grounded enough in our in ourselves and in confidence, if we're grounded enough in the grace of God, then it, it pays to take the long view, which is mm-hmm. you're not so much proselytizing, I got to convert them really fast, but I'm willing to walk with this person for a while and maybe find the goodness in them and maybe overlook some of the things for now. And I think that this is the hardest thing, especially when we get to these extreme cases, like I could never be friends with X. Yeah, you might mm-hmm. not be an endorser of that. But can you see the humanity in them? Can you overlook it for a time until you can say after a year, you know, this kind of bothers me. Can we talk about this? I I, I say this hesitantly, knowing that it's an incredibly difficult task and one that I'm not necessarily great at, but I know it's the right solution. And I know it's what Jesus did. I know he wasn't looking at tax collectors and sinners saying, man, these guys are great. (laughs) You know, he's there saying they got some work to do, but I'm willing to put in that work. There's nothing like a provocative cliffhanger to use right before going into a break. And uh, that's how it's worked out today. There is so much more to this conversation with Father Casey Cole right after this break. You can go over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. The handle is at step outside the walls there. You can find the video that we're talking about today from Father Casey Cole on his YouTube channel, Breaking in the Habit. 
They're not coming back, but there's something we can do. Don't go anywhere. There's so much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Father Casey Cole. He's a Franciscan with the Orders of Friars Minor, uh, and he has a, a fantastic YouTube channel, among some other uh, social media endeavors. You can find all of those over at breakinginthehabit.org. Just click that social media tab, and it doesn't matter which one you're on, you can find his channel there. Uh, the most recent one that I came across is they're not coming back, but we can do something. Talking about this idea that's typically put forth as we talk about the the um, the decline in attendance in our churches, the idea that when someone uh, gets a little bit older and they get further and more established in their life, they'll eventually come back to the church. And that is a trend that is becoming less and less true as time goes on. We talked about that there in the first bit of the segment. Um, Father, right before we went to break, you talked about those extreme cases that we're trying to uh, to have relationship so that we have standing, so that we can speak into someone's life. And, and as we have become more polarized in our society, we've seen people breaking relationship f- over smaller and smaller things, right? Because we have become uh, more associated with our our echo chambers, less willing to listen to differences of ideas. And so you brought up some fairly extreme cases uh, of what it might take to be dedicated towards listening, towards gaining standing so that we can speak truth. Um, During the break, we talked a little bit more about some of the difficulties of that. And I wonder if you might share that with us here. Yeah, so I think one of the trends we see a lot, and working with young people, I'm starting to see this a lot, unfortunately, is how quickly we use the word toxic. And so sometimes it's over small things. You know, I'm not, I'm cutting them out of my life because they're toxic. And that's a, that's a problem for me. I, I think that we need to have a little more patience. We need to um, recognize the goodness in people. And that was where the point I was getting at in the first segment. The second part of this is, there are some people who are legitimately toxic and there are some people who are legitimately dangerous to our well-being. And I don't think that it is the right uh, or the responsibility of every single one of us to go to every single person in the world on a one-to-one basis. I think it takes the church sometimes. I, I think it takes more than just the individual, particularly when we're dealing with such crazy things like maybe a white supremacist. I, I think that we want to be cautious and I think we want to be shrewd and we want to make sure that we're being as safe as we can with these things. And it takes someone who's very grounded in their faith and very grounded in potentially their desire to be a martyr uh, in a literal or figurative sense to, to go do these things. I wouldn't expect every person to go running out to the streets right now and finding a gang member to talk to. I'm not sure that that's our best chance. Um, mm-hmm. So where do we draw that line of toxic? I think we need to lower it a little bit. Our, our parents who may have not treated us the best way, well, you know, maybe we need to reconcile that relationship. The person who abused us, that's going to be a little bit different. So it's just a little caveat onto that point. 
let's take this back into the, the, the Franciscan framework for a moment, <clears throat> looking at the person who is our perceived enemy. Uh, I think of the story of St. Francis going and preaching to the Sultan, right? Mm. Of making his way into, uh, to a place where he was expecting martyrdom and maybe a, Maybe was a little bit disappointed that he didn't get that martyrdom. Yeah, but going to a place where the, it was the perceived enemy, and taking the time to to listen and to be seen and to be heard in in a place where he wasn't expected to be, and it yeah. made a difference. What a great follow up to what we were talking about before, too, because we have so little about that in the actual sources. A lot of it is speculation. A lot of it is our own projection back onto it. But what we do know is that they talked. And that the Sultan was amazed by his life. It doesn't say the Sultan was amazed by the way he preached or the doctrines he said. And, and I'm sure Francis threw a lot of scripture at him. That's the way he talked. But it's that he was impressed by the simplicity of his life, that he reminded him of his own holy people and his own religion. And so I, I think that that right there is, again, the point that Francis went in potentially guns blazing. But the thing that saved him was the fact that he was authentic. The fact that he was a holy man, a dedicated man, someone who could have a relationship with the Sultan. And I think that rather than making it some heartfelt story where we we have peace now between Muslims and Christians, um, or kind of watering it down, I think we can have honest discussions and we can present our faith and we can speak the truth of what we believe while also listening to the other person and seeing them as someone with dignity and, and have that relationship with them. There, there's something about going in to a situation with someone that we disagree with, but having the starting point be the person and not the idea, right? To, I'm going to go in, I want to speak, I want to be heard, I want to hear, um, and I'm not going to make any assumptions before we go in, or I'm going to test my assumptions uh, so that the person can come through and so that my person can come through. And so now it's not just about an argument or a, a battle of ideas. It becomes about um, being incarnational, right? Being, bringing the presence of God as a person who is is sharing in his divine nature, uh, who brings the presence of God into a place where maybe he hasn't been presented in a while. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about it. I'd like to suggest something I haven't maybe fully thought out, but I think that there's something to entering those conversations where we come in with uh, great antagonism or great energy, or we want to speak first, that maybe betrays a lack of confidence in us. That maybe the reason that we want to convince them so much is because we have to convince ourselves. But the truly uh, evangelical ones, the truly grounded ones, are the ones who can go in and let the other person talk the whole time and not be offended or not be worried that they're going to lose their faith or lose an argument, but not even see it as an argument. And I think sometimes we maybe lose the argument, so to speak, or betray ourselves when we come in with such animosity that it's not so much what we say, but how we say it and how they perceive us. And I wonder if we could go in a little more meek um, and not meek, not being kind of a doormat, but meek being someone who's so confident in the Lord, they don't have to fight what that might right. do for someone. Well, and the idea that I don't have to, we don't have to leave this conversation today, having this thing right. solved. You, I, I, you don't have to change today, right? I'm, we're just here having a conversation and I might 
still assert certain things of, well, I've always thought about it this way. I, you know, my church teaches this, but at the same time, not making it a a thing of, and you have to, right. Just being kind of open to that conversation to a place where this is not a, 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 sitcom that's going to be done in 30 minutes that I'm willing to let these things hang in the air because I'm in this for the long haul. And maybe you need to check yourself that if you always have to have the last word, what does that say about you? Mm -hmm. I think it's a good question. I think, I think back to the story of St. Paul in the book of Acts going up to the Areopagus in Mm -hmm. Greece they're in Athens, and he he's led around this hill, and he takes the time to wander around the hill and sees all the statues, sees all the, the, the various idols, and says, I see that you're a very religious people, right? He doesn't come out guns blazing and saying, all these things are wrong. You ought to tear them down and get rid of them. Yeah. He says, I see you're a very religious people, and, and I see here even a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that one. And the end of the day, some said— come back tomorrow. We'll hear you again. Some of them laughed at him. Some of them followed, but it wasn't this massive turnaround. Like we see at the second chapter of Acts where 5,000 were added to the number. Exactly. It's this really small um, trickle, but it started with listening. It started with perceiving and seeing and being willing to not solve that problem in one day. I love the the prayer. Uh, it's on the USCCB's website. It's written in honor of Oscar Romero. It's called Prophets of a Future Not Our Own. And I go to it all the time. And it, it basically says some of us will plant the seed, some of us will till the soil, and some of us will be further, there for the harvest. But none of us will be there for all of it. And just remembering that that's not our job, that's God's job. And so I, I think of that all the time when I wear my habit, especially when I'm in a public place or an airport, I will never know the effect that has on someone. But I guarantee you, at least some person looks at that and says, that's an omen. I need to go to confession. You know, and I hope that I have that effect on some people sometimes. And I say it's somewhat of a joking way, but, you know, I think even the talks we give, the conversations we have, the way that we show kindness, we may leave that conversation and think, well, they're still a pagan. You know, well, they're still whatever, you know. But who knows what God was able to do in that moment of just planting the seed and who will come along next? to till that soil. And I think if we can hold on to that, and again, what we said in the first segment, if we can trust in God, well, then it's only up to me to do what's mine's to do. It's only up to me to do what is mine to do. Let the Lord show you what's yours to do. And going back to some of what we were talking about there in the first segment, there are so many people who have had such a negative experience with the faith over and over through a number of different people that it's going to take at least an equal number of positive experiences where things aren't being shoved down their throat for them to be able to come to a place where they're willing to entertain that idea again. And so for us to just be content to be a people of faith in community with those around us without having to solve every problem, I think is, is something that's going to go a long way towards turning the tide and reintroducing people to the faith. Right, that it's yeah. not about intellectual battles all the time. No, and it's it's about getting to know the people that we're trying to so-called convert. It, it can't be just as I was kind of getting it in the the video that I made. It can't be just business as usual. It can't just be let's make our programs better. 
I think it, it has to do with giving things that people want to hear. Uh, I think it has to be going and getting to know people and answering their concerns. And I can think of it in just, you know, a YouTube sense for me, there are videos that I put out that are for my base. They are for the good Catholics that watch every single video and they're there to comfort them and to build them up. But every three or four videos, I have to make one that's going to reach out and it's going to attract someone who has no interest in faith. And some of the base isn't going to like that. And they're going to say, maybe it's clickbaity. And they're going to say that it's not my thing. I, I think you have to do that. You've got to speak to the wider culture specifically to them. And you can only do that by listening and getting to know them. Mm-hmm. And something of, of I think, supreme importance is that we were not called to be just a base, right? Where the, the the church is, doesn't exist for herself, right? right? The church exists. Uh, Vatican II would say for the purpose of sanctifying the world, and so if we're not doing that, if everything that we do is tailored towards um, discipling people who are already part of the church, then we are lacking something, right? We're lacking something in, in our own spiritual development, our own spiritual maturity, because as a missionary disciple, first and foremost, we are united with Christ, we are being discipled, we are learning for the purpose of being sent. And so we have to to do some of that work of going and being allowing ourselves to be sent. Yeah, there's this old question, um, are we a church with a mission or a mission with a church? And it may sound like the same question, but the, the one says that we are a people on a journey and our whole purpose is to spread the good news and we have the resources to make that happen. The other one says, we're here with an institution and sometimes we go out to get new new members. The former is what we should be doing. The latter is what we're often doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you um, as we maybe kind of close up this conversation today, what would be maybe some steps that we could begin to take that give us maybe some direction and some hope as we look at this, this problem that we're talking about, the problem of, of people not feeling a need for the, the, the community of the church, not feeling a need for a relationship with Christ. What's the, the hope for us uh, as we move toward the new evangelization? Yeah. It basically comes down to, you got to love the people that you're trying to evangelize. If you look at the people out there as those people, as the one that are heathens, the ones that need to be converted, they're going to sense that. And that's not going to get us anywhere. And so what we need to change first and foremost is the way we view the world. And it goes back to what I said before of seeing the goodness in all things and in all people. Can we look at that person who might be living a really shady lifestyle? who really needs Jesus and maybe is blaspheming all over the place, can we see that person and say, wow, but they're such a great artist. And they have this spirit about them that's interesting. And I want to get to know that. If we can't do that, we will never convert a soul. We will never be someone that wants to join us because they'll know we don't respect them. And so the very first thing we need to do is change the way that we view others. Uh, And then once we do that, then we're going to see them as our brothers and sisters. We're going to have a sense of urgency. We are going to want to welcome them in, not to check off a box, not to have more numbers, but because that's our brother or sister. And back to that that idea that it has to be authentic, because Mm -hmm. if if we invite someone in and we 
put on a little bit of interest, but really our purpose is just to be able to get standing so that we can tell them the gospel and then get them saved and then and then yeah. check that box off. It's going to be obvious because we're going to rush towards the, now let me fix you, right? Yeah. If If we're not willing to have some sort of relationship with them, even if they don't change, mm-hmm. right? Then we're we're putting ourselves in a place where we're not seeing that person for who they are. We're just trying to check the box. Yeah, if we don't see that there are parts of them that don't need to change, that God is already working in them, mm-hmm. and I think we've lost. We're talking today with Father Casey Cole. Go over to breakinginthehabit.org and make sure that you go check out his work on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and all of the other social media platforms that you may happen to be on. Father Casey, thanks for so much for being with us today. My pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Casey, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, there is more to our conversation. We record an extra segment each and every week that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air by covering some of the costs associated with keeping a show going. And in gratitude, we give them extra content. Uh, After a few months, that content's made available to the general public. So you can learn more about that community and the perks that come with being a part of the community, but also listen to some of those extra segments that we've recorded in the past, simply by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any solace and love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing. Do nothing out of selfishness or out of vainglory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves each looking out not for his own interests, but also for those of others. Have in you the same attitude that is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness and found in human appearance. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That reading again, comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. It's worth noting here that 
this is the letter to the Philippians, and that matters because Paul loves the Philippians. This isn't a group that he has to write like the Corinthians, where he's correcting grave errors and and trying to break up fights among them. This isn't the Galatians, who he calls, oh, you foolish Galatians. This is the Philippians who he, he speaks of, uh, my joy is in you, and, and, and make my joy complete, and make my joy full. Here, these are the, uh, people who he gets along with well, who he loves deeply, and this is his encouragement to them, to be united in heart, thinking one thing, humbling yourself to regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he takes that even further, saying, thinking this one thing, here's the one thing to think, have in you the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. That's the attitude of humility, of being obedient for the sake of the glory of God in kind of a, in a nation way, all, all for the greater glory of God, right? And so for us, as we are hearing the words of St. Paul to the Philippians, as we're considering what it means to be missionary disciples, it's summed up right here to be united together in thought and to be united together in the same mindset that Jesus had. In our reading from church history, let's look a little bit more deeply into that thought and mindset that Jesus had as we look at an encyclical from St. Pope John Paul II, Dives in Misericordiae, Rich in Mercy. Before his own townspeople in Nazareth, Christ refers to the words of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These phrases, according to Luke, are his first messianic declaration. They are followed by the actions and words known through the gospel. By these actions and words, Christ makes the Father present among men. It is very significant that the people in question are especially the poor, those without means of subsistence, those deprived of their freedom, the blind who cannot see the beauty of creation, those living with broken hearts or suffering from social injustice, and finally, sinners. It is especially for these last that the Messiah becomes a particularly clear sign of God who is love, a sign of the Father. In this visible sign, the people of our own time, just like the people then, can see the Father. It is significant that when the messengers sent by John the Baptist came to Jesus to ask him, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? He answered by referring to the same testimony which, with which he had begun his teaching at Nazareth. Go and tell John what it is you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. He then ended with the words, And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Especially through his lifestyle and through his actions, 
Jesus revealed that love is present in the world in which we live, an effective love, a love that addresses itself to man and embraces everything that makes up his humanity. This love makes itself particularly noticed in contact with suffering, injustice, and poverty, in contact with the whole historical human condition, which in various ways manifests man's limitations and frailty, both physical and moral. It is precisely the mode and sphere in which love manifests itself that in biblical language is called mercy. Christ then reveals God who is Father, who is love, as St. John will express it in his first letter. Christ reveals God as rich in mercy, as we read in St. Paul. This truth is not just the subject of a teaching. It is a reality made present to us by Christ, making the Father present as love and mercy is, in Christ's own consciousness, the fundamental touchstone of his mission as the Messiah. This is confirmed by the words that he uttered first in the synagogue at Nazareth and later in the presence of his disciples and of John the Baptist's messengers. On the basis of this way of manifesting the presence of God who is Father, love, and mercy, Jesus makes mercy one of the principal themes of his preaching. As is his custom, he first teaches in parables, since these express better the very essence of things. It is sufficient to recall the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, but also, by contrast, the parable of the merciless servant. There are many passages in the teaching of Christ that manifest love, mercy under some ever-fresh aspect. We need only consider the Good Shepherd, who goes in search of the lost sheep, or the woman who sweeps the house in search of the lost coin. The Gospel writer who particularly treats of these themes in Christ's teaching is Luke, whose Gospel has earned the title, The Gospel of Mercy. The Messianic message about mercy preserves a particular divine human dimension. Christ, the very fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy, by becoming the incarnation of the love that is manifested with particular force with regard to the suffering, the unfortunate, and the sinners, makes present and thus more fully reveals the Father, who is God, rich in mercy. At the same time, by becoming for people a model of merciful love for others, Christ proclaims by his actions even more than by his words that call to mercy, which is one of the most essential elements of the gospel ethos. In this instance, it is not just a case of fulfilling a commandment or an obligation of an ethical nature. It is also a case of satisfying a condition of major importance for God to reveal himself in his mercy to man. The merciful shall obtain mercy. That reading comes from a selection out of number paragraph number three out of Divis in Misericordiae, Rich in Mercy by St. Pope John Paul II. Christ in his words and his actions revealed the Father, and St. Paul encourages us to have the same attitude that Christ himself had, that by our words and actions, so too we reveal the Father to those who so deeply need 
to find a God who is rich in mercy. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Susan Wise and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.